for, I want you to take out your phone. No, really, take your phone out of your pocket. Have it in your hand. I know, what's he going to do? I'm not going to collect them. This isn't like that commercial where they put them in a... <laughs> no, actually, we're going to use our phones. So here's the deal. Uh, I don't know, I, I'm old, I get it. And some of you are old with me. But believe it or not, times have changed. And um, people do not respond to email. People do not, in the younger generation, don't even read email. Uh, so we are going to communicate more and more via social network. For those of you who don't know what social network, that's why have you have your phone out. So things like Facebook, Twitter, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to actually give you a couple minutes. I'm going to ask you if you are using any of those uh, communication tools that you would like the Grace page. If you don't know what that means, ask your neighbor. Look for somebody younger than you. Or I also would ask that you friend me. Not because I need a whole bunch more friends, which I could always use as many friends as I want to have, but this is going to become a primary way for us to communicate going forward. Uh, we just know that this is really the wave of the future, so uh, like the Grace page, friend me, follow me on Twitter, follow Grace on Twitter, and here's what happens. Sometimes what you're going to get is, hey, here's what you should be reading this week because this is what we're going to be preaching on. Here's a question to be thinking about and it'll all just help the week to come together. So I'm going to stop talking for a minute and you're going to send a friend request or you're going to follow and if you don't have any idea what any of that means, I don't know what to say. We'll have a class. Okay. We need uh, Jeopardy music here. Oh, that's good. Somebody's just humming it for me. <laughs> You got a flip phone? Oh, she's, we got one person with a flip phone. Sorry. We'll all chip in and see if we can get you a smartphone. Okay. Now let's get to the, what we're really here for. Grab your Bibles, or for some of you, your phone, uh, and open up to Luke 5. We're going to start reading in verse 17. And what we're going to do today is we're going to read two stories, and there's a common thread that runs through both of those stories. And my hope is, is as we see the common thread, that it will help to push us towards or cause us to be much more intentional in how we respond to the people around us. Thus far in the Gospel of Luke, on two different occasions, Luke has told us that the word about Jesus has gotten out, and people are coming from the surrounding towns, the surrounding regions to see what Jesus is doing. He has become sort of a, a phenomenon, and so everybody wants to come, everybody wants to see what's the deal with this Jesus guy, and so the, the crowds are forming around him. It's kind of like he's become a first century rock star. And I don't use that disrespectfully. I want you to kind of envision that sort of franticness that, that exists around a superstar when they come into town and people are all crowded around. Everybody wants to get a piece of them and it's impossible to get near to them. And the value of you having that in your mind is it makes the gospel come alive a little bit more because you realize there was chaos surrounding Jesus. There was all of these people trying to get to Jesus. And we're going to see how that plays out even in this passage. But I want you to have that picture in your mind. So Luke 5, starting in verse 17, it says, on one of those days as he, we're talking about Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That's a long ways. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. I love that sentence. 
And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went to the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Seems like an understatement. We have seen extraordinary things today. Verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Though we continue to pray each week that the word of God would be our God, that the spirit of God would be our teacher. We stand here in your presence and that is an an incredible gift that you give to us. But Lord, I just ask that you would guide my words I pray that we would leave different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. In Jesus' name, amen? So we've titled this series, Absolute, because the truth is it's critical that you have this foundation, this absolute foundation in what you believe. It's critical because we need to recognize that truth really is not relative, That your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That there's an important need for us to say there really is truth. That there is an absolute truth that exists out there. When we see through the the beginning of Luke, Jesus actually is, is put forward as the savior of the world. The important word in that is the. He's not a savior of the world. He's not one of the ways to be saved in the world. But he is the savior of the world. There is absolutely only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. And if we believe that truth is relative, then we begin to believe that, well, all ways could get you to heaven, that there's many ways to get to heaven, and Jesus is just one of those ways. But this series, this walk through the book of Luke is, the the gospel of Luke is designed to help us understand, no, that's not the truth, that there is a truth Jesus is the truth, and he's the only way. As a matter of fact, if we believe that all ways get to heaven, that anything you choose to do will get you there, then what we do is we say Jesus was wrong. Actually, what we say is Jesus was delusional, because Jesus said, I am the only way. 
He said, no one gets to the Father, no one gets to God except through me. When we look at the book, book of Luke, we see that there are two kingdoms and those two kingdoms that are at war. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of Satan. There is a kingdom of life and a kingdom of death. And when we talk about Satan's kingdom and the kingdom of death, we talk about things like hell and that's a part of the reality, that there really is a hell. But that death is more than just what happens after we live on this earth. The, the kingdom of Satan is here to bring death to every good relationship you have. He's here to destroy your marriage. The kingdom of Satan is here to destroy your friendships. The kingdom of Satan is here to destroy God's created order. There is a battle going on. Death of marriages. Death of unity death of God's created order. The kingdom of Satan is hell-bent on stealing and destroying your life. Not a very cheery message. But actually it is. Because there's good news. Because there's two kingdoms at work. And both kingdoms are accessible. Right? The kingdom of God is at hand means the kingdom of God is in reach. The kingdom of God is within your arm's reach. We have victory over the kingdom of hell. And that's what we need to know. But what we need to, to get to our, into our minds and have this, this solid understanding is that both exist and people are perishing. People around us are perishing. And that truth ought to motivate us. It ought to cause us to realize that, that we need to be active in helping people to understand that the kingdom of God is at hand, that Jesus really has come, that Jesus is, really is the way to life. As a matter of fact, the deepest questions that every person you know that, that you are wrestling with, the answers to those questions are only found in Jesus. And that absolute truth ought to be a motivator for us to get out of our seats and share our faith. I was talking this with Tony Simarusti, and he sent me this story, and I just want to read it for you because it was pretty impactful for me. It's about a guy named Charlie Peace. He was a notorious criminal, and after his arrest and trial, he was sentenced to death. On the fatal morning in jail in England, he was taken on the death walk, and before him went a prison chaplain routinely and sleepily reading some Bible verses. The criminal touched the preacher and he asked him, what are you reading? And he said, the consolation of religion. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human there and yet dry-eyed, read of a pit that has no bottom, into which a fellow must fall. Charlie asked himself, could this preacher believe the words that there is eternal fire that never consumes its victim and yet slide over the phrase without even a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tear, you will be eternally dying and yet never know relief that death brings? This morning in Luke, we read two stories, two stories, and there is in these two stories a common thread that I want us to see, the common thread that 
has the potential to make all the difference in our lives if we just grab onto it. The first story opens and there is a group of religious leaders from Jerusalem who have made the journey to check out this man, Jesus. And what we begin to see in the Gospel of Luke is this battle between good and evil. The battle between two kingdoms is ramping up. We're going to see it more and more as the story goes on, but it begins to ramp up. And so he says he was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from the village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And if you're not careful, you just read through that, you don't realize what Luke is really saying. What he's saying is they came and they were sitting in judgment of Jesus. They're not there to hear a good sermon. They didn't come because they really wanted something from Jesus. They came and they were sitting in the judgment seat. I kind of envisioned them with their arms crossed and their heads slightly tilted and their brows furrowed, you know, listening to Jesus. They are sitting in judgment of the teacher, Jesus. And while these religious leaders are sitting in judgment, it says that a random group of men, just ordinary guys, they're not priests, they're not Pharisees, they're not Sadducees, they're not the religious leaders, they're not the guys that went to seminary, they're not the pastors of the church, they're just ordinary guys. And it says in verse 18, and behold, I love that, he starts with, and behold, what he's really saying is, check this out. No, no. It's really cool. Check this out. Behold, look, this is a cool thing. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus, but they found no way to bring him because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and they let him down through the roof on his bed, through the tiles into the midst before Jesus couple of cool observations from this. We do not know what the relationship of the men was to the paralytics. I grew up always hearing that it was his friend, that a group of friends did this. And the truth of the matter is we don't know, and I kind of like the fact that we don't know, because really the truth is it could have been a group of men that were coming to see Jesus, and they saw this paralytic, and they said, hey, let's take him. He looks like he needs Jesus. He's broken. He needs, we've heard about this Jesus. He's healing people. Let's bring him to Jesus. They were determined, whatever their relationship was with this man, whatever their relationship was, whether they were a friend or just an acquaintance or just met him on the street, they were determined to get this guy in front of Jesus. And that's the question I want you to wrestle with today. The question I just want you to sit with for the rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week, maybe the rest of the month is, are you willing to do what it takes to get the people in your life to Jesus? Are you willing to do what it takes to get the people in your life to Jesus? The passage says, but finding no way to bring him to him, they didn't give up. They're going to find a way. The Gospel of Mark actually tells us that they removed a section of the roof, whether it was a thatch roof or a tile roof, we don't know. But what we know is they were going to find a way to get this guy to Jesus. So they go up on the roof, they remove part of the roof, and we can read this and be like, this is cute. Look, this is pretty dramatic stuff. They removed part of the roof. That would kind of make me angry if it was my house, right? (laughs) They removed part of the roof and they lower this guy before Jesus. They're willing to do whatever it takes. Jesus looks at this display of determination and he says a couple things worth noting. Verse 20, he says, it says, when he saw their faith, whose faith? 
the faith of the guys that brought the man to Jesus when he saw their faith. And here's what I want you to do. You have the ability to have faith for other people when they don't have faith for themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that your faith is going to save them, but there are times when you can have enough faith to bring somebody to Jesus. Now, Jesus is the only one that can save them, but there is this picture of us having the ability to have faith in the gap for someone who doesn't. I don't know if this guy believed. We don't really know that part of the story. What we know is Jesus saw the faith of the men, and then he says these powerful words to him. He says, man... Your sins are forgiven you. Last week I talked about how the physical and the spiritual are, are intertwined. They're, they're linked together. I, I made that really clear. And what some of you heard was if you are spiritually well that you will never suffer. And I just want to be clear, I did not say that, nor do I believe that. What I want you to hear is it is not healthy for you to separate what is going on in your life physically and what is going on in your life spiritually, that you cannot separate, that God has created you a very complicated and complex being, and your physical well-being and your spiritual well-being are interconnected. And so when you go through a difficult season, when you are having a, a difficult time, whether that's health or anything else, the right question for you is, God, what are you up to? God, what do you want me to see? God, how do you want me to respond to this? God, how are you using this to shape my character? God, what is it that you want me to, to learn? What is it you want me to know? Because what's going on physically is related to what's going on spiritually, and you need to determine that with the Spirit of God that's at work in your life. But here's the deal. Scripture is clear. We are all sinners, I don't think I have to convince any of you of this. You all know that you've made mistakes. You all know that you've sinned somewhere. So Jesus looks at the paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. Not because he was a paralytic, because he was human. He was a sinner. And this is pretty good news. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're indignant. They got their arms crossed and their heads turned and they say, who can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins? Actually, they make the statement of absolute truth. They say, who can forgive sins except God alone? And I think what Jesus says to them is, exactly. Now you're getting it. That's exactly what I wanted you to see. So he asks them this really kind of a trick question. He says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? I'm guessing most of them thought to themselves, well, rise and walk would be pretty impressive. <laughs> but really, what the truth is, your sins are forgiven is a much more important and a much more difficult thing to have happen. But Jesus says, just so you know, I can do both. He says to the man, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose and before them and he picked up what he had been laying on and he went home glorifying God. Here's what I want you to take from this story. We see skeptical religious leaders sitting in judgment, waiting to see what's going to happen with their arms crossed, judging whether or not what's really happening is really the movement of God or is it something else. They're in judgment. And then we see ordinary men, untrained, not the religious leaders, doing everything they can to bring this man to Jesus. And the question is, which are we? 
Have we become religious folks who sit and come to church and wait to see what's going to happen? Or are we willing to do whatever it takes to bring our friends to Jesus? So Luke switches gears and he tells another story. And I think he told these two stories together because of this common thread between the two. It says Jesus was walking along. He sees Levi, the tax collector. And he says to Levi, hey, follow me. And what does Levi say in verse 20? It says says in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the three marks of a disciple. And one of the marks of a disciple is willingness to lead a sacrificial life, willing to lay down what you have to follow Jesus, being so desperate for Jesus that whatever he asks you to lay down, you're willing. So here we have another example of somebody who's walking away from their job, leaving everything they have to follow Jesus. We sometimes gloss over the fact of just how scandalous this was. Being a tax collector was being a traitor to the Jews. Being a tax collector was meant that you were an extortionist, you were a thief. As a matter of fact, to be a tax collector and to be a sinner, it was kind of a synonymous phrase. They meant the same thing. So for Jesus to call a tax collector was pretty scandalous. But Luke wants to remind us of this truth. Jesus has the power of making all things new. Jesus has this way of saying, look, I know everything you've done, and I forgive you. I know. I know just how bad it's been. I I know everything in your past, and guess what? I, I forgive you, and what I want you to do is I want you to look forward, and I want you to put that life behind you, and I want you to walk with me. And so when it says he left everything, you know, he's not just talking about the money on the table. He's talking about he left that way of life. He left that way of thinking. He left all of that stuff that was in his past because Jesus forgave him and he followed Jesus in a new way. And you know what Jesus is still saying? I know. I forgive you. Would you just follow me? Walk in a new way of life. Walk in a different way. Levi, the slowly tax collector, he's so excited He leaves it all, and I think he says to himself, man, what can I do to get my friends in front of Jesus? I got an idea. I'm going to have a dinner. I'm going to open my home, and I'm going to invite all of my friends to dinner. It says Levi made a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with Jesus. For the Jewish people, this is a big deal because when you ate with somebody, you were saying, I accept you. We are now in a relationship with one another. As a matter of fact, it was a way of saying, I respect you. It was a way of saying, I value your thoughts. I value your opinions. There was so much more to a meal. So as you read through Luke, you're going to see a lot of meals. There's a lot of around the table. And what you're going to see is Jesus invites people you wouldn't expect or at least the Jewish people didn't expect to be at the table. So here he is having a meal with the lowest of the low, the tax collectors. And there was another part of the, the, the meal that we sometimes miss. So in a, in a village like this, in a small town, all of the village people would come to see, not the YMCA village people, but the people that lived in the village. Um, they would all come and they would, they would gather around so that it's an open air sort of house, usually a big courtyard. They're going to serve the meal on a courtyard. And sometimes, in this case, I think hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came to observe the meal. We have nothing like this in our culture. 
but it was commonplace there. And part of the reason it was common is because there was this sort of like symposium that would happen at the end of the meal. They would eat, and then they would have a conversation about philosophy, about religion, about ethics. And so you would invite people to the table that you wanted to engage in this intellectual conversation, this symposium. So why would Jesus invite tax collectors? They have nothing to contribute to religious conversation, ethical conversations, philosophical conversations. That's why the Pharisees are indignant. They should be at the table. They're the ones that have studied. They're the ones that know all this stuff. The conversation is going to be way better if you had us at the table, but now you have these lowlifes at the table. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus came for the broken. He came for the messed up. That's pretty good news to us. That's the gospel message. The religious leader criticized, and, and they're still sitting in judgment, right? That's kind of the theme that runs through this, that the religious leaders are sitting in judgment. So they judge Jesus again, and they say, what's the deal? Why does he hang out with sinners? And Jesus says these words. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I've come to call the righteous. I've not come, excuse me, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's the deal. He is not saying to the religious leaders, you are already righteous. He is not saying to them, you are not sick. What he is saying is, I have called, come to call people to repentance, whether you accept it or not. He's really saying, I have come to call all people to repentance. I've come for the sick. You just don't know that you're sick. That's what he's saying to them. Jesus comes to call the brokenhearted. Jesus comes to call the sinners. It's good, good news. So this is Vision Sunday. And here's the vision. We as a church are going to do whatever it takes to put the people around us in front of Jesus. We as a church are going to do whatever it takes to bring the people in our lives to Jesus. We're going to use the things, the incredible opportunities that God has put in front of us to continue to take the gospel outside of these walls. One of the things I've been saying a lot in the last few months is we have to stay on mission. God has given us this incredible opportunity here at Grace that when people come and visit, they're shocked at all of the, 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 the amazing things that God has placed within our, our ministry to allow us to take the gospel to other people. We have 2,000 kids that play organized sports at Baldick Park. We have the opportunity to easily take that program to 3,000 kids and not even stress out the facilities. We got 100 kids that come to us to learn to read at or above grade level. But we know is if we can get to 300, we can literally get to the entire third grade class on Detroit's east side and teach every willing third grader to read at or above grade level. We need to press into the things that God has placed in front of us and do it better and do it more and have spirit-infused excellence in all of those programs. We got a, a food pantry downstairs in my father's business that helps people with their physical needs and their spiritual needs and counsels them and, and gives them food. We need to continue to grow that ministry. Did you know we have a healthcare center on our campus? 
full dental, full medical, OBGYN. If you need dental and you don't have insurance, you can go there. If you have insurance, you can go there. It's an amazing facility, and it's part of how we take the message of God. In any way, whatever means necessary, we are going to take the message of Christ to the people around us. We have a counseling center. The counseling center will help with marriage counseling, and if you have kids that are struggling, they can help you with talking through with your kids how to, how to get things back on track. Incredible group of Christian counselors at the counseling center. That's a part of doing whatever it takes. You know that we partner with organizations that are literally responsible for the church that exists in places like Morocco and northern India. For 50 years, we've been partnering with a group in Malaga, Spain, who has planted the church that exists in a Muslim country called Morocco. It's an amazing partnership that God has given us. And we have these partnerships throughout the world. And what I'm feeling God saying is, press in. I have given you all the different tools you need. And it doesn't mean we don't need to do other things, but it means we need to continue to do the good things that God has placed in front of us and do them better and do them more and do them with greater efficiency with the spirit infused into all of that. One of the things that I want to share with you, because I just think it's critical for grace, but I actually think this is critical for the church in North America going forward. We have what's called a small group ministry here. There's about 300 people that participate in small group ministry. And by this time next year, we want to have 900 adults, more than 900 adults, plugged into the small group ministry, being a part of what we call community groups. A community group is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 14 people that typically meet in a home. Some of them will meet here. Um, but they typically meet in the home, and it's an opportunity for you to experience life with other people at a deeper level, to kind of encourage one another, to live out all the one another commands in Scripture, where you're just hanging out with one another, talking to one another, helping each other along the way. This is also where you would get some of your primary care, so somebody has a baby, and then their, their group will end up helping them out with meals for a season of time, or watching their older kids, or whatever that takes. The, the care is going to come. It's going to be how you connect, but here's why it's critical going forward. There's a book out that I've been reading. It's called Good Faith. This is actually a picture of the book. That's pretty good. Good timing. Um, being Christian when society thinks that you're irrelevant. I would encourage all of you to buy this book. Um, they can send me some royalties later or something for saying that, but you need to, you need to get the book. And here's, here's the deal with the book. It's based on a ton of research. And what it's telling us is that in our culture, the culture around us no longer sees the church or sees religion as a solution to their problems. As a matter of fact, for the first time ever, the majority of people in America think that religion is the problem. Meg and I went through a pretty ugly season in our life 25 years ago, and somehow we both knew that maybe God had the answer to the problem, and so that's what ended up getting us to church, but that's something that was infused in us. That was a way that people thought back then. People no longer think. As a matter of fact, this is a big difference. We need to hold on to that. People don't see the church as a solution to the problem. 59% of the youth walk away from their faith by the time they reach their 20s. I want to share this one with you because I think it's really important. It comes out of the book. They say that only 20% of Americans, it was way over 50% a few years ago, but now only 20% of Americans think clergy are important leaders and a source of wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad for me. What I am saying that for is people are not going to turn to me. They're going to turn to you. 
Because religion isn't getting it done and faith isn't getting it done and they're skeptical of the guy that stands on the stage and preaches. And so you know what that means? A great deal more responsibility is resting on you to do whatever it takes to put your friends in front of Jesus. I share this because we have to get more creative. We gotta be willing to cut a hole in a roof if that's what it takes. We gotta be willing to open our home and have dinner parties if that's what it takes. People are not gonna naturally come to the church to find the solution. So the scary part is what the American, more, the majority of people in America see Christianity as irrelevant and extreme. We need to be willing to be inconvenienced. We need to be willing to even be persecuted We need to be willing to do whatever it takes. The future of this church, the future of Christianity in America is riding on our ability to do things differently. What I love about the book, and this is a quote right out of it, it says, when people commit to a Jesus-shaped way of life, they create a counterculture for the common good. I want us to create a counterculture for the common good, living their lives not for themselves, but for the benefit of others. Sounds very Jesus-like, doesn't it? Remember that guy, Charlie Peace, who was the criminal who went to the uh, death row after his encounter with the preacher? It all became too much for him, and he said these words. He said, sir, if I believed what you and the church say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on my hands and knees and think it worthwhile just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. My question is, do you believe it's true? My question is, do you believe that there is absolute truth and that people are perishing? And if you do, allow it to motivate you to do whatever it takes to put your friends in front of Jesus. Cut a hole in the roof if that's what it's going to take. So we're going to close the service a little bit differently. Bryce Gray is the chairman of the Elder Board, and he's going to come up, and he's going to share some numbers with you and talk about the budget a little bit. This is the day where we vote on the budget. If you are a member at Grace, uh, every year we vote on the budget, and it's how we move forward, and this will just take five or six minutes. And so when you leave here, you can vote at the kiosk. That would be great. Uh, But as Bryce is coming up, I'm just going to pray for us. And uh, I just want to encourage you. Let's be the church that God has called us to be at Moros 994. Lord, help us to just walk out of this place with a new resolve that we are going to do whatever it takes. Whether that is giving at a higher level because you're calling us to, whether that is serving in a different way, whether that is opening our homes. Lord, help us to see the thread of this story that it's not the religious leaders who are bringing people to Jesus. It's the common folk. It's the people who are sitting in this room listening to me that are charged with the task of reaching their friends and their family. I think about the conversation I had between the services of all the people that said, I heard you, but it's so hard to talk to my family. Lord, give us courage. Give us wisdom. Just help us to be people of influence. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. Thank you that we truly are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bryce? Well, good afternoon. How are you? Our uh, fiscal year is June 1st to May 31st, so we've just ended, and as Doug said, those of you who are members will be asking to vote on your way out.
if you haven't already. Um, here's a review of our year. As you can see, our budget was 2.35 million. We took in just under 2.1 million, but the good news is that we spent 50,000 less than we took in. So we had a surplus. Most of the reason for underspending, yeah, always good, clap. Most of the reason for underspending was a lot of open staff um, positions that didn't get filled until towards the end of the year. Um, the other good news for us is as a church, we have no debt. We have cash that's not, for example, yeah, you can clap. Just so you know, the more you clap, the longer I'll be up here. No. Um, we have no debt. Uh, we have, in the bank, we have some cash that's been given, like impact, that's set aside, but the free funds, if you will, it's about one and a half to two months of our expenses that we have. So we have some, but not a ton of reserve. Um, some of you may be wondering, well, where did that 2.1 million come from? This next slide, I'm not sure if you'll be able to read it um, from where you are, but it gives a breakdown. We had over 1,000 families or individuals that gave throughout the year. Um, approximately 700 gave 1,000 or less. And of those that gave more, the top 100 accounted for a little more than half of our budget. And then the next 250 is in the range, I think, of 5,000, 1,000 to 5,000, sorry. Um, so our hope would be that we have about 400 um, families that are... Um, members of our church, and that's about 350 in our what we would call core giving. Our hope would be that many of you who are friends and are regular attenders, that God would begin to move in your heart and you would more and more have a sense of wanting to sow into and to invest in what's going on here at Grace. Just to clarify, all the numbers that I've just mentioned, that does not include impact. That's a whole separate set of giving, so that's just for the general offering. Um, if you got one of these brochures, this is a good time to pull it out because you definitely will not be able to read the next slide. Um, this is our budget that we are presenting for the membership to vote on. It's on the last page of this little booklet, and it's 50000 more than last year. So $2.4 million just under that is our budget. Um, the increase of 50000 is predominantly um, health care is about 25000 more, and we've given a 2% um, salary increase for the first time in, I think, five or so years to our staff. And we are believing this is a bit of a faith um, extension for us because we have most of our positions filled now. And so we're just believing that God is at work, and we would really like to encourage you to, um, to vote. If anyone has questions that would like more detail than obviously this 10,000-foot overview, uh, Doug and I will be in the family room. As you exit the sanctuary, it's the room straight back. And then if you would like to vote, there's a kiosk for you up on the cafe level that says membership, and you can go and get your ballot. Why don't you all stand, and I'll just send us out with prayer, okay? Lord, we are so grateful for all that you're doing at Grace, and I thank you for the vision that you've um, given. I thank you for the ability that we have to get to know each other, and we pray, Lord, that the staff positions that have been filled, that there would be a multiplication of ministry that would occur. Thanks for this timely message today as we see that we are to be a part of the process of having the faith to bring our friends to you and being creative and having parties, and we just pray, Lord, that we would get connected and that we would extend your love to others. I ask, Lord, that you would move in the hearts of many here to really be um, sensitive to what you would have them sow into our church in the terms of their giving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.